This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Well, we're going to go over quite a few things. We're going to be talking about students and engagement with uh, elections. We're going to be talking about media literacy. We're going to be talking about the 26th Amendment when college students got the right to vote. We're going to go through so much. And we're also going to throw in some stuff about some local elections and uh, campus elections on Clarion Campus. So hopefully you'll really like this episode because we did a lot of work to prepare it for you. Anne, would you mind telling us um, who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm the Campus Election Engagement Program Fellow uh, this semester at Clarion. Um, well, I'm a sophomore uh, in secondary education English. Um, uh, I'm involved with ABLE uh, on campus, uh, and that takes up most of my other life other than working. <laughs> Great. And then Katie, would you tell us who you are? I am a sophomore at Clarion, a secondary education English and Social Studies major, and I am the Campus Vote Project Fellow, and I am also the Student Senate Secretary. So I've been dealing with elections. <laughs> yes, yes, you both have been very busy and recently appointed to these positions. So we're very lucky at Clarion, which is such a small school, to have such good leaders that are wanting to make a difference um, and to educate students on voter engagement. So that's really great. Um, and you both can like jump in with this question, but can you tell us a little bit about what Democracy Fellows actually do? Well, from what I've gathered, since I haven't had orientation yet, uh, our role is going to be going around, well, kind of going around since we're mostly virtual, um, and uh, educating people on campus about voter registration and civic engagement. Mine's about the same. Um, we've only had one meeting so far, so uh, other than the website's information, um, all I can see is that we are really about educating and getting you to register and to actually show up and vote when the time comes. Yeah, and I guess Taylor would also be a good person to ask since she's held these fellowships before. Yes, yeah, so I currently hold the SEAT fellowship and I've previously held the Campus Vote Program fellowship um, the goal is college students are typically um, very politically motivated, but they aren't always super educated on how to translate that motivation into activism. And so the role of a democracy fellow is to make sure your student body is educated on how to register to vote, how to get to the polls, um, and educated on how they can vote. So vote by mail process, um, absentee ballots, vote early days if you have them. Um, it is a fairly new program, so Campus Vote started, I believe, in 2012, and I think the Campus Election Engagement Project started right around that time as well. Um, so they are still fairly new, and they are implementing several fellows across several campuses. Um, it will look a little different this year since we're not in person. <laughs> in the past, typically, there were tabling drives, um, going into class, and speaking but we'll make the best of it this year to get our student body engaged and voting. 
Yeah, and I, it makes me wonder, knowing that it's such a new program, with the way um, millennials and Gen Cs, ages 18 to 29, have increased their engagement since 2012. Because 2012 really was the peak so far for engagement, correct? 2018 was the peak. 2018 was? Well, 2012, there was the start of the incline, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it makes me wonder if there isn't a correlate, like there's definitely a correlation, but I wonder if there's any causation to that. Um, there probably is a little bit. There's also just this idea that um, it was a lot easier to reach students in 2012. So implementing an internship or a fellowship, you know, in the 90s or the 80s would have been incredibly difficult. And in the early 2000s, um, voting rates were um, pretty steady and there was a slight decrease. So they implemented voting programs and saw they peaked in 2012. Um, obviously off years are usually lower with 2018 having the blue wave and flip the Senate motivation behind it. Um, there was a lot of turnout there on both sides. It wasn't just one side turning out. It was just a very um, I guess heated election that got a lot of people out. And they anticipate if there wasn't a pandemic, 2020 would have also set engagement records. But with a pandemic, um, and that's really a key thing fellows work on is education, voter education. Um, how will students vote with a pandemic? So if you're registered at your university and so, you know, Clarion didn't go back and how are you going to vote then, educating your student body on mail-in process, um, absentee process, all of those. So given that, uh, I'm looking at some of the research that was done in preparation for this episode, and I noticed that there are a few resources that students that wish to vote, or anyone who wishes to vote, can use and utilize to better be um, informed on candidates and ballots in their areas. Would you want to talk a little bit about them? Yes, so one resource we always advocate for is Ballot Ready. They are a nonpartisan organization who um, compiles the entire ballot for your zip code. You type in your zip code, tells you what your ballot looks like. Um, and so it gives you time to prepare and research people for the polls. We also um, mention I Side With with our student body, which is a political quiz and you determine the length you only answer the questions you want to, and it tells you which candidate you most align with. Um, we had several student body members take the quiz um, pre-pandemic when we were holding our tabling drives, and they were very impressed with the interface. I think you can have up to 150 questions answered, or I think it's something like as few as 50 for an accurate count. Yeah, and I mean, as somebody who's done this quiz, I really enjoy how not only does it give you the most common answers people would have to certain uh, political concerns, but also you can add to it. You can add your own answer to whatever you believe in, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, Anne and Katie, have you guys taken that quiz? Yeah, I actually took it last semester. I took it with my roommates and a few of our friends. We were all just sitting in my dorm room one night and we were just like comparing results. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that this candidate agreed with this or that they were so against what I believed in this. And it's really interesting. And 
I found it uh, very educational when trying to figure out who I would want to vote for. Yeah, I took I took the quiz too. Uh, I was taking a political science course last semester, and uh, we were really keeping up with the uh, Democratic debates. Um, so I, I took it because um, I'm a registered Democrat, and I wanted to see who I would you know watch and hope for and um, yeah vie for in the debates. And uh, I was I, I've taken a couple of different ones, uh, and that one I definitely felt like the questions were a little bit more. Um, easier to kind of decipher between the answers. Uh, some Sometimes the questions are just so vague that you sit there for a second and you go, oh, all right, I'll just skip this one then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I know personally, whenever I took it, the other thing was I'm a registered Democrat, but I am not a Democrat. I'm not a Democrat when it comes to the parties that are available. If we didn't just have a two-party system, I wouldn't be a registered Democrat. So it's really interesting to see um, all the different theories and political theories that are out there. So the final aspect to a fellowship is ensuring that you're not just registering your students, but you're actually getting them to turn out. So um, if you ask someone, are you registered to vote? Typically they'll tell you yes. Um, and they typically are. So like a lot of high schools, your senior year, you do um, have your students register. You are eligible, I think for like, a stipend from the governor's office in the state of Pennsylvania if you do that. So high schools encourage their seniors to register to vote. But if you ask them, have you voted in the last three elections, they'll typically go, oh, um, I think I voted in the presidential one, which was four election cycles ago. So um, it's important that we're not just registering our students, registration rates look great, but that we're actually getting them out to the polls. Um, so fellows work to put plans together to make sure students know when the election day is to make sure they're drafting election plans for themselves so who am i going with when am i going how am i getting there um all of these things are key to making sure you get out to the polls um couch parties are a big thing right now with everyone being online so very similar to how we've set this podcast up where we're all meeting from our respective rooms um, you would open up a Zoom session, everyone would come, and everyone text three people, how are you getting to the poll on election day? Um, it's pretty common to send out reminders and to tell people to set alarms on your phone. Um, but voter turnout is a huge portion of what democracy fellows do because it's not just registration rates that matter. We don't just want our students registered, we want them engaged. Yeah, I never have heard of couch part couch parties. Is that the term? Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's a really cool thing to do. And I think that would work even like not in a pandemic. It would. I had never heard of it until the pandemic hit. And I was like, I I've always planned civic engagement nights where we all come together and we have a speaker or a panel. Um, and so I was like, I have no clue how to engage students in a pandemic and so it's been recommended a couple times a couch party hmm. that's really neat mm -hmm. so talking about voter turnout that brings us to our discussion about students participation in all elections so something for our listeners to keep in mind is millennials and gen z's will be the largest share of eligible voters in 2020 
so because of that, uh, it's really important that we have engagement from younger audiences because uh, local offices and issues have a direct impact on students' home and their college communities. And these officials make decisions on topics like student debt, funding for higher education, and the economy, as well as other programs that students are invested in. So by um, being engaged, you're helping make a say for what you want to see in your community. I don't know very, I don't know your guys' experiences, but I know that a lot of students that I've interacted with that aren't registered to vote, they just don't care about politics. Like they don't see the appeal of wanting to understand or know. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's more frustrating than anything is just like, it's not, oh, I don't agree with you kind of thing where they do care about politics. It's just straight up, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want anything to do with it at all, no matter what. It's just like lukewarm, a lukewarm feeling about it. And that's more frustrating, I think. Yeah. And that's really hard because like, you can't make people care about things, but you know that they care about I don't know, like, let's say education. Like, if it's a student, they obviously care about education in some capacity. Why else would they go off to get more education? So it's just trying to educate them on, well, if you care about this thing, you should care about this other thing because that's going to impact, this is your best way of being engaged and making a difference towards the thing you want to see happen or keep happening. Yeah, and I also think that, like, if they pay taxes, they should care. Just, like, do they want to know where it's going at all? Like, the, the government's taking some of your money, so don't you want to know what it's going towards? And don't you want to try and find someone who represents where you want it to go towards? Like, I just don't get it. And that's something else we talked about in a previous episode. We talked about um, representation. It was in our, uh, when we talked about the first female enumerator for the census. Mm -hmm. So we talked about having somebody who represents you as um, in politics. And I think that's another big reason why younger people need to vote. Because if you look at our demographics right now, I just read a statistic on the news where it was like, the majority of Democrats believe that the best age for a politician to be 50. And I'm like, here's my thing. As a young person, I want to see more young people like me in office. Even if I'm older, I want to see more young people in office because of the fact that we don't want legacy rulings. And what I mean by that is we don't want the morals and social norms and social constructs of 20, 30 years ago, deciding legislation for 2020 and like for right now. And it's just crazy to me that we don't think about that whenever we're presented with, oh, do you want to be registered to vote? Because there's so much more to it than just picking people. And I also think it's interesting that they pick the age of 50, mainly just because at 50, most people are thinking of retirement at that point. Like you're you know, if you're in a labor-intensive career, you probably are at retirement age or getting ready to retire. I know the police don't go by age, they go by years served. Mm -hmm. So it's completely possible that at 50 years on a police force, you've retired. Um, but most people are looking at retirement. And when you look at the age demographic of our 
Senate of our Congress, they are more so retirement age than they are first employment age, which is just weird to think about. Like, if they were a teacher, they would be thinking, okay, I'm ready to leave. I'm, I'm over it. It's been a long, it's, I've enjoyed it, but I'm done. I want to be on a beach somewhere. <laughs> and also, like, don't get me wrong. I love RBG. She's a phenomenal woman, done so much for politics, done so much for women. It's time to go. It's time. When your body is not, it's not even your body. Like, say if she was in tip-top shape, she is living, she grew up in a time that is very different than what we are now. And even if you are a very understanding, keeping up with social constraints, you still won't understand exactly what's going on because you don't have that personal experience. I love RBG, but she gotta go. <laughs> Case closed. And like thinking about it the way that Taylor mentioned that teacher's perspective, like when you think about it, when teachers first start working, that's when they're usually the most like uh, energetic energetic and encouraging and passionate about what they do. And then 15 years later, they're like, okay, I can't wait to retire. These kids are making my hair so gray. And then like at that age, that's when people are getting elected, when they've already reached their like peak passion, I guess. That was a weird way to phrase it, but okay. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. <laughs> but like, we want people to be elected that are still passionate about like leading and everything. So I find it interesting that 50 years is. Oh yeah. <laughs> and something we talked about with Dr. Dale last night too, not only thinking of age, but another reason why we need to have younger people in, younger people uh, participating in elections is because we don't have a very diverse uh, political government either. So if there's a big demographic of young people who don't see themselves in their uh, leaders. So if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're an immigrant, you know, we don't see those role models and we don't see people like us fighting for our needs. So that's another reason why younger people should participate. Another thing about this I just wanted to bring up was um, a reason why I don't think people participate is typically politics is considered a taboo. So I know like Taylor's a political science major, you guys are um, fellows, so you're very well accustomed to talking about politics. But for a lot of people, it's a very touchy subject. It's seen as almost like, it's very controversial. You bring it up and it's almost like talking about sex in a way, you know, where you're told, oh, you don't bring that up. That's not appropriate. It's not polite. Um, you keep that to yourself. And that makes me wonder if that's why college students don't participate because they don't know any better. They don't know how you get registered. They don't know, um, enough about why they should be registered and then if they do want to be registered it seems kind of like who do I reach out for help from because you're not really supposed to talk about it. Yeah I can say with from personal experience I politics was kind of a taboo subject in my household not not because like 
it's super taboo, but because my parents, I, I mean, I'm a preacher's kid and my parents are generally more conservative. And it was funny because actually the week before I moved back in for this semester, my mom and my dad and I were all sitting together eating lunch and started talking about like the Black Lives Matter movement and everything. And in the back of my head, I was like, don't say anything that's gonna get you kicked out of the house. Not that I would actually get kicked out of the house. And it was actually a very nice and civil conversation, but because I was so scared of disagreeing with my parents, um, I had, I never realized that our political judgments and decisions are actually a lot more similar than I thought that they were. So I think that if it wasn't such a taboo subject and people could actually talk about things in their families at schools and stuff, like it, the world would be a better place to put it simply. <laughs> yeah, uh, last semester before we all got sent home in March and then uh, even the semester before that, uh, the people that I lived with and lived around, we would all watch um, political uh, documentaries and the debates, and we would talk about everything. So when we all got sent home, it was a complete switch for me because um, my parents and I completely disagree on almost everything. So um, I was used to just, you know, striking up a conversation and mentioning um, politicians' names and new policies that were coming out, and then everything started turning into an argument. And... Uh, I had to step back and go, all right, well, maybe this isn't the time or the place, you know, the subtlety and um, trying to keep the peace. Um, because, you know, I tried to talk to my parents about the Black Lives Matter movements and some of the protests that were happening and, you know, um, bills that were being introduced. And it was startling because, you know, the circles that I run around and the people that I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis believe the same things I do and support the same things that I do. So it's it's hard to have uh, civil conversations and try to um, uh, not persuade and just listen and have to, you know, not to kind of pull your hair out. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I have a very similar situation to Anne. So I, I've gone through very similar things. Um, and it, it's so important. And I think these are really good skills we're getting from our experiences is that we're not going to always be with people that we agree with. So what can we do to, to respect their beliefs, but also educate them on our beliefs? You know, not saying they have to agree with us or we have to agree with them, but come to a civil discussion. I think that's really hard for people to do with politics and something that um, we don't typically see, especially in our media. I think your situations are very interesting because I grew up in a household where no one was registered until I registered. So politics weren't a taboo topic in my household. They just weren't ever discussed. And so I think that is another extreme we have to think about. I, I was fairly educated on politics because I chose to be and I sought outside sources, but a lot of kids in my neighborhood and town weren't simply because their parents weren't and their parents didn't want to be and so like my parents aren't educated on the elections that are coming up and the policies that are coming out and so it's never been taboo to talk about but I don't bring it up because there's no discussion that's happening because they don't care 
and like it's not just like oh I don't want to educate them they're like oh I don't care wow that's really interesting I never knew that about you and that makes me think that like it's so important what you three are doing because if you can get them when they're young they'll probably think about it all their life and follow elections all their life it makes you kind of wonder um, if there should be things like this happening more in high schools to reach people that don't choose to go into higher education or, you know, how almost kind of like the census, like how can they better reach people after they are older, middle-aged, old age, you know, that's really interesting. But speaking about reaching people, that brings us to something that I've really wanted to talk about. Um, Taylor and I have discussed it a lot. Um, in previous se- in the previous season, which is social media and internet literacy. So the way we were talking about it earlier, and I think I came up with a pretty good analogy about it, and so I'm gonna say it. You know when you see like a Domino's commercial on TV, and you see it, and you can almost taste it because you see the stringy cheese and the the steam coming off the crust and stuff, and you're like, wow, that's it. That's what I desire. And then you go to Domino's, you pay your 15 bucks for your tiny pizza, you get it, the crust is cardboard, the sauce is too sweet, and the cheese could very well be moldy, but I can't tell. So, what went wrong? What was, how did that discrepancy happen between what you saw on TV and what you got? Um, that's media literacy. So all media has a bias and all media has an audience. So whenever you're seeing pizza commercials, quote unquote pizza commercials, it's really important, but before you go and buy and make that choice of what you're going to put in your stomach, you talk to friends and see what they think of it. You read reviews about it online from nonpartisan buyers. You uh, listen and look up the ingredients that go into your pizza so you know what is really behind what you see. And also you look at other companies, you know, you want to see if they're meeting the same standards as other companies. So what is the pizza? The pizza is your political candidates. Um, Just like any ad for any product, when you see ads on TV for Trump, Biden, uh, anyone in the Senate, anyone in your local government, they have an audience, which is you, to try and persuade you to partake in them, to vote for them to fill your country, your stomach, (laughs) with them. So that's why it's so important that you do research, just like you would for any other thing you were buying. And another thing that I think is really important, so um, you know how whenever you're seeing like a drug commercial, for example, how they have to put the risks and benefits and they can't put anything on the TV that isn't true when it comes to drugs? It's different with political ads. So political ads are considered free speech, so they can't be censored. They, so my only issue is you said they can't put things that aren't true. You couldn't run an ad that your political opponent is a pedophile if they can prove I'm not a pedophile. Okay. So you can't run completely 
untrue information about. But you can stretch the truth very, very far and imply that you've seen your political opponent at the park a lot with no children by a playground. Yeah. But you couldn't just come out and say, like, so-and-so's a pedophile. If they can prove, I've never been arrested for pedophilia. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and another thing, too, when you're looking at who is presenting you your news, that's another thing that you really need to look into. So, like, um, we'll put a picture on the screen here of the different uh, news outlets that are available to you. And they are very much on a political spectrum. So some are very far right, some are very far left, some are center that are trying to be like nonpartisan almost. So what I would recommend, and you guys can jump in for kind of like how you go about your own media literacy, but what I do when I see something that um, I either don't believe, believe, but look up and then I realize it's not true, I usually have to go through multiple sources and see if they're all saying a very similar type of thing. Sometimes it's good to go back and forth between something that is very far left, very far right, so that way you can see um, how they're tweaking things to better suit their version of the story. And another thing is, uh, I really like when it comes to anything that anyone says, just reading transcripts, because that is, just the dialogue of what was being said. So then I can make my own assumptions based on whatever was being said. But I'll give you guys like an opportunity here to talk about like kind of what you do whenever you see or hear things. Yeah, I basically just kind of do the same thing. I'll look at either side of the story um, because no matter what, even if the news source says that it's nonpartisan or doesn't take sides or whatever like they take sides and you can tell in the language they use and whatever like it's it's easy to tell when something is biased so you have you have to be smart you have to look at as many sources as you can to try and like gather what actually happened you know yeah I do that too um but the biggest thing that I started doing is um I have to stop myself from just reading the headline and the little blurb it gives because um, I used to do it in high school a lot um, when I was just searching through the news because, oh, I don't have time. Um, but then I started listening to like uh, news outlets on my way uh, when I travel and um, like sometimes I'll just throw it on when I'm getting ready in the morning now, but actually looking into the articles and reading it because sometimes the headline is completely misleading and it's not what the article says at all. So making sure that you read through everything and critically think is really important too. One of my favorite things, not necessarily for complete fact-checking purposes, you should always fact-check on a center, um, on a centered source. But like if I read something off of um, a platform that I know is very oriented one direction, I'll go to another platform that I know is oriented in a very different direction and try to search for a similar headline. So if I see in like the New York Times that AOC's proposed revisions to the Green New Deal, 
I'll immediately go to Fox News and look for like all the AOC headlines to see what they put out just to sort of compare what they're reporting on and how they're reporting it. And obviously that's not the best fact checking method. And so I will then go to other sources. Um, my favorite, mostly because it's most articles are free is NPR. Um, I also sometimes use BBC, but it's not great if it's just American politics. It's really only good for international. Um, but just seeing the differences they report on and that kind of lets you know what the controversial aspects of the Green New Deal would be, if that's what we're talking about. So if one thing is that we should be using public transportation more and they both just report that the recommendation is to use public transportation more, that's likely not a lie and that's likely an uncontroversial recommendation if they both agree upon that. But if one saying we should limit our red meat intake to only three nights a week and one saying cow should be illegal, then that is a controversial item that you need to investigate further because both sides are likely moving it towards their direction in some fashion. Yeah. Um, and another thing that I just wanted to point out, I feel strongly that like high schools should have courses in media literacy, especially because we get so much of our information from the media. We don't read about it. We don't experience it firsthand. So we definitely should be um, learning how to decipher what on our social media is true because a lot of people do just read the headline. And I was one of those people for a long time. That's why The Onion is so believable to so many people. They read the headline and then they're like, ah, that could be a thing, except it's not. <laughs> Which I do frequently. Like, I'll be talking to my fiance and I'll be like, did you see this thing? He's like, who made it? And I'll be like, oh, The Onion, never mind. That's a common thing that happens to me. And then I felt stupid. I wouldn't feel stupid because I feel like that was a big... So when I was in high school, I used to um, follow this... It wasn't really a magazine. It was just like this um, account, I guess, on Facebook. It was called I Fucking Love Science. And they did this study entirely on Facebook. And it was this one, like, news article that was some, like, crazy headline, like, aliens have been discovered and they invented weed or like something stupid like that and then when you clicked on the article it was like this is completely a test we have no information to back this but share it only like if you have read this share it and like you had to share this specific line and then if you hadn't read it you would just share it with whatever and so they conducted like that study that way. And I thought that was really interesting just to see how many people were just sharing it. Cause then you could go through and look through their shares and like how many people shared it. And I can't remember what the article was or what the line was. I just remember being like, wow, like a lot of people are just sharing this. And it wasn't even like a real believable headline. It wasn't like polio discovered in Spain. Like that's kind of believable. And I'm like, okay, like it was wild. <laughs> oh yeah for sure um 
And just one last note about everything. Uh, there is a source I found that I really liked and it's called the News Literacy Project and it's a nonpartisan national educational nonprofit that provides programs and resources for educators and the public to teach, learn, and share the abilities needed to be smart, active consumers of news and information and equal and engaged participants in a democracy. Um, they looked like a really reputable website. I'm gonna make an account later tonight and I'm gonna do more information on it, but I'll leave links in our descriptions and I think it's a really good resource. So discussing media literacy and the importance of elections. One thing it's also important to know is that college students did not always have the right to vote. And so many college students don't take advantage of their right to vote today, but the voting age used to be 21. And so I am going to make it my goal this season, except for next episode. I'm going to bring one amendment into every episode. That's my goal. We started with the 20th amendment or the 19th amendment. We're now discussing the 26th amendment. So the 26th amendment reduced the legal voting age from 21 to 18. The long debate over lowering the voting age actually began during World War II but it intensified during the Vietnam War when young men were denied the right to vote but being conscripted to fight for their country. So draft dodging and draft protesting were a huge thing during the Vietnam War. And one of the biggest things that came out of the Vietnam War was the saying, um, old enough to fight, old enough to vote, which had actually started in World War II, but obviously if there isn't an active conflict going on, um, there's not really a reason to say old enough to fight, old enough to vote. Um, fun fact also, World War II is the last war that we actually fought in. The Vietnam War was actually just a conflict because Congress never declared it a war. But <laughs> in 1970, um, the Supreme Court heard a case called Oregon v. Mitchell um, and ruled that Congress actually had the right to regulate the minimum age, but only in federal elections, um, the Constitution provided states the right to regulate state and local level elections. So if you just change the federal voting age to 18 for federal and then leave it for 21 for state and local, that's obviously very confusing. Who can I vote for on the ballot? Who can I not vote for? When can I register? Um, and as I said, this had been going on since World War II. So there was increasing support for a constitutional amendment which Congress passed in March, 1971. The states ratified it and President Richard Nixon signed it into law July 1971. This amendment gave all people age 18 who were citizen of the United States the right to vote. Um, the only exceptions are if they are severely disabled and they have a conservator put in place. So a big conservatorship going on right now is Britney Spears. Britney Spears cannot vote because she has a conservator. So unless you have a conservator, when you turn 18, if you are a citizen, you can register to vote. Um, and that is why a lot of high schools set up voting um, drives. Another reason in addition to um, the stipend they receive in the state of Pennsylvania, because we can only encourage people with money here. But, um, I remember in my civics class, that was a big thing. Everyone registered. Unfortunately, I was the oldest in my graduating class. 
And so I turned right after we went to school. And then um, we did ours in like April, I think. And so when I turned mine in, because you had to turn them in, you just didn't have to sign them. The teacher like brought me up to his desk twice to be like, you didn't sign on the line. And I'm like, I'm already registered. Thank you. <laughs> I already voted once. <laughs> so question. Mm -hmm. What's a conservator? So a conservatorship is if you are deemed um, mentally disabled and you can't take care of yourself properly. So in case of extreme disabilities where you have to live at home for the rest of your life. Um, so Britney Spears has one. Everyone knows like when Britney Spears shaved her head and everyone said she went crazy. Um, it was determined that she couldn't properly take care of her estate, and so her father was signed on as a conservator. Um, it happens fairly often for, like, severely disabled people. Um, I guess Britney Spears was kind of a poor example because there is discussion about, like, she shouldn't have lost her rights. Typically, conservatorships are very beneficial to the people who have a conservator, so, um, in the case of an extreme disability, it might be a parent or a sibling who um, they'll always be allowed on your medical records, always be allowed in your bank statements. Um, typically, there isn't a lot of abuse that happens because for the most part, like if you have siblings, if you think about um, if a tragedy occurred and you needed to take care of that sibling for the rest of their life, your priority would be the sibling not getting rich. Um, obviously, as with every system, you do run the risk of someone abusing that system, and so that's the accusation in the Spears case, um, that her father's abusing the conservatorship and essentially draining her estate. But typically, um, to apply for a conservatorship, it's incredibly difficult, and it takes a long time to get approved, and you have to be like, this person could never function on their own. Please grant them a conservator. Interesting. That's very interesting since I, I'd never heard of that before. It's not something commonly discussed, um, which is just our society is geared typically towards able-bodied people and able-minded people. And conservators are typically given to um, severely mentally disabled people. So people can't function on their own. Um, and for a long time, conservators weren't as common because they would be placed in an institution like a sanatorium or um, sometimes referred to as asylums. They would be placed there because they would become too hard for a parent to handle. Um, now we have proper resources that you can apply for and can keep your um, loved one in their home for as long as possible. So with the 26th Amendment, people fought very hard for us to have the right to vote. Um, so similar to when we spoke about women demanding the right to vote, there were a lot of 18 to 21 year olds and even people who were older than that who fought for college students to be allowed to vote while they're in college. Um, and so there are several elections you can vote in now at the age of 18. You can vote in the presidential, which is probably the most common election. Everyone sort of knows presidential election cycles. Um, if you've ever had a political science class, 
you probably do your dates based on election years. So this election year, this happened, then there was this election year. Um, I had one where we had to know all the election years back to like 1980 something. And it was like, I'll never use this information. Um, in college? Yeah, at college. That's cool. Last year. <laughs> Your poor brain. <laughs> um, and presidential informations, I would say, or presidential elections are ones where media literacy is probably the most important because they do have this tendency to get very mudslingy very fast. And so typically in primary stage, you don't see a lot of that because it is, you know, you're trying to show party unity and you're not going to say that this person's awful because they do have very similar values to you. But then when you get down to your final two, so in this case, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but it could occur in any election and it has. Um, there is accusations made, there are clips taken from rallies and from conventions that are distorted to be put in ads. Um, and really you can't you can't censor anything. Like Caitlin said, you can't say we're not running this ad. The only thing you could do, and television can't do this, but like Facebook or Twitter has the advantage to say, um, we're not running any political ads. So anything deemed political is not allowed on our site. Um, and they get away with that because they're not, they're not going based on content. They're going based all across the board if it has anything to do with politics. And so right now that's a huge issue because Facebook was a huge voter registration platform. And so now they're very hesitant to run any voter registration ads. Um, our second biggest elections are our nationwide elections. So these are our Senate seats, our um, House seats. So those typically also have a decent amount of commercials. Um, candidates are interviewed, all of that. It does change, obviously your candidates change state to state. Ohio people don't elect Pennsylvania senators, but everyone votes in a similar fashion for a state for a nationwide election. Then you have statewide and local elections, which are people like state senate, state house, um, your more local elections like that. We fortunately, I know um, Donna Oberlander, she serves in the state Congress. Um, she's also a trustee at Clarion University. Um, but those elections see a significant decrease in first just participation, but then also informed participation, mostly because their campaigns are smaller scaled. And so they're not taking out all these television ads and all these newspaper ads. Um, and finally, that brings us to the um, very local section. So in between statewide and very local, you would have your local, like your school board. Um, I don't even know, town auditor, I know, only because our town auditor got arrested. But, <laughs> so that's been in the news lately. I know that's a position um, that's coming up. <laughs> but you have them on your ballot. And again, if you go to Ballotpedia, it will tell you what positions are open. Um, there are a lot of great resources where you can look at what's called the down ballot, and that's everything that's below the presidential election. Um, and then you have sort of internal elections. So in any nonprofit organizations, in any universities, anything like that, 
it's still an election and you should still participate in it because you're picking people to represent you. And so I'm going to turn it over to Katie to talk about an internal election we have going on right now. Yeah, we are currently having student senate elections at Clarion. Um, so student senate, we're basically like a student government kind of thing. If you ever have a student council in high school, um, we uh, are a group of 22 elected students, hopefully this year. <laughs> um, and we host meetings where people can bring their concerns about campus um, or whatever they want and we'll try to get them to the right people. Um, so our applications were this week and our elections will be hosted next week. And it's gonna be very interesting to see how the voting turnout is for that because we, it seems like every club on campus is struggling with uh, engagement and everything. So it kind of, it's going to be interesting to see how even in the smaller elections like student senate, uh, what engagement's going to be like and how that might reflect what's going to happen in bigger elections. For example, the president. <laughs> so. Yeah, and then just to reiterate, so it's voting from August 31st to September 4th? 4th, yeah. I think that's, yes, fourth. Okay, so uh, students, if you go to Clarion University, just go to CU Connect and make sure you participate. We would really appreciate it. Um, we'll have a link here in the podcast as well. Perfect. And if you go to another university, look into your university's local student governing organization because then it does make a lot of decisions for the university. And we appoint a lot of students to committees who represent the student body on these important committees. So Caitlin and I served on our fall reopening team we were appointed by the Senate. So make sure you know any internal election will affect you. So the last portion of today's episode is how can students participate in elections while in college? And so when we hopped on Zoom today, we tried to encourage Anne to run for Senate um, she explained that she's extremely busy this year, and I know that's a common concern college students have. I don't have time to look at candidate guides, and I don't have time to independently research all these people, and unfortunately, when you don't trust your media sources, that does eventually lead you to research more media, source, media sources, and it's very time-consuming. So the first step to participating in elections is registering. And so at Clarion, um, we have a couple ways you can register. Obviously this semester is a little different because we're not in-person hosting registration drives, but we have the CU Engage social media platform where we share links to vote411, um, rockthevote.com, votespa.org, all of which allow online registration. You fill the form out right there and send it through. Fortunately, PA is not a wet signature state. So if you have a wet signature state, that means you will have to print out your application, sign it, and then mail it in. Um, in that case, there are several nonprofits who will mail you an envelope with a stamp on it that you put your application in and mail it back. Um, if you can't afford the stamp or if your post office is only open two hours like ours is um, and you just never make it there. So there are options. Um, 
once you're registered, that's unfortunately the easiest step, then you have to decide how you're voting. So do you vote by mail or do you vote in person? If you're voting in person um, this year, make sure you wear your mask, take hand sanitizer. Um, if you wear gloves, do not touch the ballot box and then touch your face. Like, I hate when I see people wearing gloves and they're just touching their face. I'm like, just take your gloves off. <laughs> You're just wasting a pair of gloves. <laughs> like, don't touch your face. But I get it if you want to wear gloves and not touch your face. Um, so just make sure you're practicing safe voting practices. Um, some college campuses have polling sites right on their campus. Clarion is one of them. Um, not sure where it is because it used to be in Tippin, but Tippin was under construction. And so it's on campus somewhere. Um, didn't it used to be in the building past, uh, along with all the, all the trucks. With all the trucks. You find the one with all the trucks, that's where you vote. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, down by Pages, like down yeah. past it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think it was down there for a time. I'm just not sure where it is this year. Honestly, I'm not even sure if it will be open this year, just because I'm not sure students will be there in November. Um, That's valid. <laughs> so, Clary did confirm their first case Wednesday. It was an employee, not a student, but um, <laughs> we lasted longer than Bloomsburg and University of North Carolina, and that's really all I care about. <laughs> so, um, if your campus is not a polling site, there are plenty of places you can check your polling location. If you're in Pennsylvania, votes PA. If you're not in Pennsylvania, vote 411. Um, make sure you have a valid ID. So ID laws do change state by state. Um, and look to see if your campus provides the voting drive. So in the past, Clarion actually used to rent vans and cars to bus people back to different polling locations. Obviously, we're not doing it this semester just because the volume of people in town and on campus is much smaller and also the people who used to organize it and lead it are not there because of the pandemic. Um, so we are really encouraging vote by mail. Um, there is a lot of question regarding whether vote by mail is secure and here's what I have to say about it. My grandfather is older. <laughs> I don't know how he would feel about me saying his age. I was going to say it, but I'm not sure if he'd be okay with it. We're just going to say he is older. He hates to pay with things with his bank cards, and his biggest frustration in his life is when we go to a store and he tries to write a check and they go, we don't accept checks. So he doesn't automatically have his bills pulled out of his account he sits down once a, like once every other week and fills out checks for all of his bills fills out his little checkbook tracker he's so much better at it than me because I'm like I spent $20 Taylor you have to remember you spent this $20 like don't forget um but he does all of this he postmarks it and then he puts it in the mail he trusts the mail for his car payment he trusts the mail for his phone bill. He trusts the mail for really everything, his dough tags. And that doesn't, like, if you're not from Western Pennsylvania, that doesn't mean a lot to you. But that's essentially like trusting the mail to deliver your firstborn child to you. So he trusts it essentially with his life. 
and he has always trusted it. So the mail service is reliable. In Pennsylvania, we also allow drop-offs. So they have collection boxes specifically for ballots. So if you fill out a ballot and you don't want to put it in the mail, and you think your mailman's sketchy, he's going to steal your ballot, you think it's going to run slow, which is a concern. Sometimes it takes two weeks to get his deer license and he's upset. But valid concern, so you take it to this drop-off box. Well, let's say you're concerned that some 17-year-old heathen is out trying to have a fun time and they wreck the drop-off box. There is the final option to either take it to your local elections office or to take it directly to your polling place and drop it off there. What they do there is they put it in a box. At the end of the day, when they come to collect all the ballot machines that they've brought, they'll also collect this box. There is no line to drop off an absentee ballot because you do not need to check in, you do not need to confirm your registration, and you do, need, do not need to provide ID. You just bring your ballot in, you say, this is my absentee ballot, I'm putting it in the box. You put it in the box and you leave. So there are options if you don't trust our postal service. Um, as far as like mishandling things, I don't have an issue with the postal service. I will say things are running slow and there's a couple reasons for this. One, the postal service is severely underfunded. To that, I will say they are selling commemorative stamps for the 19th Amendment and I just think you should all go buy some. They're really cute looking. Um, you can also buy a pin. And like, who doesn't love pins? Tree loves pins, collects pins. Be like Tree and buy a pin from the post office. Um, so they are severely underfunded. There's also this thing, um, a pandemic that's happening. And so a lot of people are ordering online. And so there's a lot of high volume shipping happening that didn't used to happen. Like think three years ago, how much stuff you had delivered to your house. Maybe an Amazon purchase, maybe a textbook, maybe something you bought late at night that was an impulse buy that you probably shouldn't have bought. But you weren't having a whole lot shipped to you. Now we're having groceries shipped to us. We're having important documents mailed to us that typically would have been emailed or we would have gone and signed in person. What? Medications. Medications are now being mailed. There's all sorts of important things that are being mailed. And so because the post office is underfunded and it isn't used to this volume, they are running a little slower, which is understandable. So request your ballot early and return it early. And if you're that concerned, take it to your polling place and drop it off in the box. With a mask on. Yeah. Please. <laughs> um. And the only thing I have to say in regards to the voting by mail and the other issues, and this is not, this does not represent Clarion University, this does not represent any of the projects that everyone is associated with. Um, the, what I'm going to say is, I feel like if they're going to mess with the mail-in ballots, they've already been messing with your electronic ballots for years. You know, if you're, it would be just as accessible to uh mishandle one than the other so if we truly do believe that's what's happening then we have bigger concerns than just this election and no election method is foolproof so 
you know, people say, oh, these ballots got lost. Well, electronic voting machines get lost, and then all that information is left out of the, like, stuff has gotten lost in elections for as long as elections have happened. It's just, unfortunately, a part of life, because nothing can be perfect. It's just how life works. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, like, one party using it to their advantage, or you know, the two-party system distorting votes, whatever the conspiracy theory is, vote by mail isn't new. So we talked about a conservatorship, and that's when you don't have the mental capacity to take care of yourself. Some people are disabled, but still have the mental capacity to take care of themselves, and what you can do is request an absentee ballot. And so that's not the only people who request absentee ballots. I requested absentee ballots until vote by mail was legalized. Um... I didn't like the way legalized sounded. (laughs) Instantly, I was like, oh, I don't think that was the right word. But, okay. We've also always allowed our service members to vote by mail. You, they apply for an absentee ballot, we send them an absentee ballot. They also get an extension to send it back. So this idea that these numbers won't be ready the day after the election the results are never ready the day after the election. Like, we've never had that quick turnaround to be like, the next day we're like, oh, this is it. This is who won. This is your president. It's never happened like that. There's always been at least a week deadline extended because that's how long it takes military members to ship ballots overseas. And so there's no reason to be afraid of vote by mail, but I understand if you want to vote in person. Like, my great-grandfather loves going to the polls. He knows all the people who works at his polling place. It's his little social hour to go and be like, I haven't seen you since last November, and they chat, and he votes, and he leaves, and he's probably going to vote in person this year because it's his favorite pastime, and so, I mean, vote in person. Wear your mask, take your hand sanitizer, be safe, but if you want to vote by mail, it's no more risky than voting in person. Yeah. So with all of the things we've discussed in mind, we are coming to our discussion questions. So for our first discussion question, we've already kind of beat this thing to death, but why should students vote? I think students should vote because I want to see more women in politics and I want to see women like me representing me. Um, I think that students should vote because I just want to stop hearing students complaining that there is no one truly representing them uh, in Congress, in whatever. They, if they just vote, they might get their way. (laughs) I think it's important that students vote because we all have a voice and we should all be using it while we have the chance. Because, you know, someday, uh, you know, we might get so uh, old enough that, you know, it's more, it's more effort than not to go and, uh, well, leave it up to our children and, you know, their kids. So uh, if you can do your part now, then it's important. I agree with what you've all said. And I just also think this idea that it doesn't affect you is false. It may not affect you as much when you're younger. That's fair. But it does affect you. It determines your parents' health insurance, who you're likely on. It determines your tuition rates, which you're either paying or you're agreeing to pay later. 
let's let's be clear if you're taking loans out you're not not paying tuition right now you're just gonna pay it later <laughs> so it does impact you in ways you don't think about and if you're not voting you're not having your voice heard yeah. and people were killed for protesting for the right to vote don't let them waste that don't make that worthless yeah i completely agree the second discussion question should colleges and universities have appointed democracy fellows? No. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, where are we going with this? No, I think it's important that, the, that college students get every opportunity to be educated on voter registration, on civic engagement, on anything. Um, because a lot of this kind of information isn't readily available to them. So providing an outlet for them to be able to get all that information, I think is really important. Yeah, I completely agree with Katie. I think just the other thing that goes along with this, when you have, which the fellowships we hold are paid, we're paid with a stipend at the end of every semester. I don't know that they necessarily need to be paid fellowships. I know fellowships are a lot of work. Um, I've put in a lot of work into the past fellowship I held. I know I put in a lot of work over the summer. Um, but I think it's more approachable when it's a couple of students sitting at a table than when it's four members of administration who typically run voter drives on college campuses sitting at a table saying, are you registered to vote? If you see your friend at a table and you go, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, are you registered to vote? If you register, you can have a sticker or this mask or um, what else, pens we've given out, candy. It's more approachable. And so it's this idea that you want, you want to meet them where they are, I guess. And so implementing fellows allows you to have students go into classes and say, I think you should be registered to vote. So I do think democracy fellows are important and they don't have to be specified through the campus vote project or the campus election engagement program. They can just be a student worker position or, you know, a club on campus can start it up. It really can be as grand scale or as small scale as you want. Really all it takes is four kids sitting at a table saying, are you registered to vote? Do you know that we have a polling camp, a polling location on campus? Are you aware that your school ID functions as a valid ID to vote with? These are things students aren't aware of. And it's a lot less intimidating to have a fellow student tell you that than to have, you know, your university president or university administration say that to you as you're walking into Turkey lunch day, which was always the day we tabled because there were lines. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point to make. I never thought of it that way. And then discussion question number three. How will civic engagement look during a pandemic? So I know you guys have already been kind of starting to work on what your plans are going to be for this semester. So I'll let you guys go first. Well, for me, this isn't even part of my fellowship, but I'm a CA on campus, which for those of you that don't go to Clarion, that's an RA position. Um, and so I have to make programs every month and everything. So one of my programs I created was, um, I actually have invited Taylor and Caitlin to speak with some of my residents, virtually of course, because we have to be safe. Um, 
but it's one vote can rock the boat and it's a discussion kind of panel idea of talking to residents about civic engagement and registering to vote and everything because I especially with some of the freshmen on campus I don't think they realize that how important civic engagement is I think they're just like oh my parents are voting or I'm just going to do what vote whatever my parents are voting for you know and I think that when people start looking into stuff like that for themselves they start to realize oh hey I actually do care about these these issues in this kind of situation and I want to take a stand for myself so that's what my whole goal is right now I just started uh, planning some events and I'm very just toes in the water at the point of my fellowship, but um, I think it's, it's going to be almost impossible to keep people involved through the whole process. I think um, with multiple efforts, um, it will be successful in the end, but I mean, just from the the past at the end of the last semester it was impossible to get students to engage with basic things posting pictures and I know on my end it, it got to the point where it was well what's the point of this and you know we're all stuck at home we're yeah absolutely Taylor and I have been working a lot on trying to utilize social media that's been a big thing that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast is to reach students and others who want to learn more about women in politics and why they should vote and census and everything that matters to us. Taylor does a phenomenal job on social media trying to reach students through all kinds of things, quizzes and fun facts of the day and just a lot of really inventive ways to try and uh, ensure that students are still hearing the message that we want to give them even though it's not how we would normally give it. And I think social media will be everyone's biggest tool this year. Um, and there are a lot of initiatives to help campuses use social media. So one is Voter Education Week and every day for the week there will be different graphics on social media. So one is how to make sure you know how to read a ballot. One's how to make sure you know the voting process. Um, all sorts of different things throughout the week. There's National Voter Registration Day, which is the whole day where you just repeatedly post, are you registered to vote with the link to go get registered. Um, so if you're following See You Engaged on everything, good for you. If not, I highly recommend you follow them because they will be your one-stop shop for all your voting needs at Clarion's campus. Um, and if you're not on Clarion's campus, you can still follow them because you can still use all the links. They're still applicable to you. But I would also recommend looking at your university's engagement plan. So they might have an engagement social media that they're just starting because they now need it. We've never needed it before because we held two tabling sessions a month and we would just stop kids when they didn't want to talk to anyone and say, are you registered to vote? Would you like to register now? So I do think it will look a lot different, but I also think it will impact how we engage students civically going forward. And you do have to meet people where they are and everyone is on their phones. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
So with everything in mind, you guys should definitely go out and get registered to vote and vote this year and all years that come to follow. Uh, Taylor and I would just like to thank Anne and Katie again for joining us and for all the work that they are planning to do for Clarion University, for her students and, you know, with the rest of your careers. Um, if you guys like this episode, make sure you like and share and subscribe. Uh, next week, we will be having Dr. Dale Elizabeth Pearson on, who will be discussing with, uh, with us women in higher education. And we're going to talk about Clarion's 150-year uh, history to celebrate Founders Day, which is September 10th. And if you take nothing else from this episode, take this. When I took AP politics my junior year, we walked in and sat down and my teacher asked us who was registered to vote. And most of us said no, because we weren't 18. But this, a couple kids were, and he said, of you who were voting. And this one kid, I don't know if he was trying to be edgy or whatever, was like, I'm not voting. And my teacher looked at him and he goes, I don't want any of you to vote. And we had never heard that from a social studies teacher. And he goes, no, for real, I want you to stay home on election day. I want everyone to stay home, and I want to be the only one who has a say in what happens in this election. So when you stay home, you allow Mr. Kalpich, who called his history class Kalpichia and said to us every morning, good morning, servants, that it was not a democracy but a dictatorship, you are letting him determine how this country looks. And no, he wasn't as bad as that made him sound. He was kind of a goofball. But he was serious in that if you stay home, you are letting someone else determine your future. And that's really foolish. Yeah. So with that in mind, make sure you go out and get registered to vote and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Bye. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening and make sure that you go out and register to vote.